Today, I am truly blasted to have Robert Martin, Uncle Bob. Uncle Bob changed the way I code, the way I think tens of thousands of programmers code, with his seminal work, Clean Code, a handbook of agile software craftsmanship. We're going to talk about that book and a number of other books in the Robert C. Martin series. Uncle Bob, how are you? Well, I'm just fine, Jesse. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's been a long time since we spoke. Yeah, I was I was trying to recall where when we first met. It was a very, very long time ago. <laughs> I, yes, I think I think it was at a conference about 25 years ago. Well, it's been a long period. <laughs> yes. This was back when we were, or I was, trying to figure out OOA&D and uh, UML diagrams and doing a hash job of it, if I remember properly. Yeah, I, I can't seem to pull all of this out of my memory now. <laughs> Yeah, well, we're I both. I do recall, you know, all those days of, of UML and then the the three amigos and the unified yes. method, and <laughs> it all seemed to make sense at the time. Well, you know, we 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 all just kind of struggle through life and see what we can make of it. Which brings me to the first thing I want to talk about. Can you? Tell us a little bit about the history of the manifesto, who was there, how it came about, and where things stand now with that. The Agile Manifesto, wow. Um, sure. So this goes way, way back to like 1999, uh, and extreme programming had, had become popular. Kent Beck had written his book, and Martin Fowler was involved, and Ward Cunningham was involved. And, and there were a number of other competing uh, processes. Scrum was out there, and DSDM, and FDD. And they were kind of at odds with extreme programming. That was a, a competitive arena. And a few of us thought we should just get everybody together and hash things out in a room. And Martin Fowler and I sat at a coffee shop in Chicago and fired off a, an email to all of the folks that uh, we thought would be the most important to get into a room and said, hey, we ought to meet in the Caribbean. Because, you know, why not go to the Caribbean if you're going to talk about <laughs> software process? And Alistair Coburn wrote back, actually, he phoned me uh, almost the same day, I'm pretty sure it was, and said, I, you guys beat me to it. I was just about to send the same email, but I like your invitation list better than mine. Can I add a few people to it? And in return, I will do all the legwork and set it all up in Salt Lake City. So, okay, you know, if you're going to volunteer, uh, sure. So that's how it, it uh, started at Salt Lake City. And the, the, um, the 17 of us arrived uh, in February, I think it was, 2001. We had invited quite a few more people, um, but only 17 could could go. And we all sat there and we did the kind of thing that you do at meetings like this, which generally speaking is nothing. Uh, we wrote uh, <laughs> things on index cards and we sorted them on the ground and we scribbled things on whiteboards and then went out skiing and had dinner. And, and the magic happened on the second day. At least that's what most people think. I think it might have been the end of the first day, but most people seem to think it was the second day. Somebody wrote on the whiteboard the 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 basic of the of the manifesto. And the most important thing on the whiteboard at that moment was this idea that there were things in the past that are not bad, they're good. It's just that there's these other things we like a little better. Nobody knows who wrote that. Some people think it was Ward Cunningham. Some people think it was Martin Fowler. But somebody wrote it. It's probably best if we don't know. And from that moment, everything just kind of settled out. All of a sudden, we understood why we were there. And we scribbled a few more things on the whiteboard and said a few more words. And we all flew home. And Ward Cunningham made the brilliant move of putting it on a website and allowing people to sign it. This was 2001. So the idea of a of a user-modifiable website was kind of new. And Ward, Ward 
put that up, he wrote some Perl code or something and, and allowed people to sign the website. And tens of thousands of people <laughs> signed it. And we had a tiger by the tail. We really didn't expect that. I've been to a number of meetings like this, and they, they usually end in uh, a, a nice memory to be filed away, but nothing more. Uh, this turned out substantially different from that. <laughs> I would say, in many ways, it changed programming well beyond the number of people who signed that. I think it has permeated through uh, certainly any of the development that was new starting around 2005 going forward, somewhere in there. Yeah, Ken Schwaber is probably the guy who's most responsible for that because he came up with this idea for uh, certified scrum masters. He, he actually called me up one day and he said, Bob, you've got a, a training room as I was running a company at the time that, that uh, had a bunch of training rooms. And uh, he said, I'd like to borrow one of your training rooms uh, and I'm going to teach this course that I've come up with, Certified Scrum Masters, which I thought was the dumbest idea I'd ever heard. Uh, but, uh, you know, Ken Schwaber was a friend of mine and why not? So I let him use one of my training rooms. In return, he uh, he trained a number of the people working for me, not me because I had to go somewhere else. Uh, and that started this whole crazy thing of, of Certified Scrum Masters, the project managers in the world thought this was a great thing to stamp on their resume, certified scrum master. That sounds pretty impressive. <laughs> but that pushed it over the over the edge. All of a sudden, everybody had to be doing agile. Everybody had to be doing scrum. All the project managers had to have it on their resume. And uh, it really took off after that. Okay, let's let's talk about if if you don't mind, just a couple of the fundamentals of Agile, and then I would like to talk about some of your books. Sure. So so what do you think is the, the key walk away when someone says, oh, you need Agile experience, or you need to be in an Agile environment? For somebody who has not been, what what's the key concept? Agile is the way that programmers are observed to behave in the wild. Uh, it, it's not some kind of crazy revolution. It's not some kind of, of deep technology. It's just, just the way that makes the most sense. You, you work in small little chunks. You check that each chunk seems to work. You, you do the next little chunk. You check to see if that sort of works and, and you count, kind of count the number of chunks you can get done in a period of time. And, and that's uh, a measure of your progress. If you were to go back in time and look at the way software was done in the 1950s or the 1960s, uh, you would see something that looked very much like Agile. They didn't call it that, but you know, it was a very short-cycled approach. Um, the, the Mercury Space Capsule guys is a good example. Those guys who were writing the avionics for the Mercury Space Capsule, they, they would write their unit tests in the morning and make them pass in the afternoon. The uh, IBM Federal Systems Division doing the software for the uh, Polaris submarines, right? They, they would work in periods that were a matter of a few weeks long. So this was a, a, an old idea. It had been around for a very long time. It was very natural. And then something happened in the 70s that kind of screwed everything up. <laughs> so for someone who is interested in agile today, my advice to them is to look back in time and imagine how software might be done if you just didn't know anything about it at all. And how would you work? And you would work in really short cycles and you would check things at the end of every cycle, which is pretty much what agile is. One of the most uh, controversial parts of agile, I don't, I don't believe it's intrinsic. You may disagree with me is side-by-side uh, -side or pair programming, which is almost impossible to convince management of. And uh, I'd like to hear your opinion on whether one plus one is greater than two. <laughs> 
I mean, it's kind of amazing to me that this is controversial. Uh, if you've got an emergency in the field or you've got some production problem, you get you know more than one eyes on the screen. Everybody kind of just floods in and says, okay, what's this problem? And you get a bunch of brains working on it. And if that's the way to deal with the most pressing problems, why isn't it the way to deal with all problems? People work better when they are working together, not working separately. We've got this funny idea of a programmer. A programmer is someone who sits with their back to everyone else wearing headphones while they stare at a screen. And that is not a very productive way to work. I know it feels productive. I know everybody thinks they can get into the zone. You have to experience working together with one or two or three other people to realize that there's an immense amount of productivity you can have when you are doing that. Now, you don't have to do that all the time. It, it's one of those um, myths of agile that you must pair 100% of the time. You must be working side by side with people 100% of the time. That's that's nonsense. You can work alone if you feel like working alone, but you ought to be working with other people a fair percentage of the time. And not just because it's more productive, but because it helps move knowledge through the team. So imagine the amount of time that you spend in a code review, right? The, you get everybody together and you do a code review and you spend all this time reviewing the code. Imagine if you were to use that time as a, a way to co-author code and to share in the creation of what's going on. Uh, and and I think you see the benefit there. Yes, I, it's strong. It's it. I find that you can line all of that up and it's still very hard to convince a manager or a, a PM that that putting people side by side, even for, you know, 50 percent of the time is going to pay back in reduced uh, errors and more efficient coding and uh Talk to me a little bit about, you know, you've talked to an awful lot of people. Am I unique in that or is that a common issue? Oh, it's a common complaint. People say things like that all the time. And even though there have been studies that show that two people working together actually finish faster than two people working separately. It's, it's a fascinating study that's been done. Even though that's true, I have a different view on this. That's not the reason to pair program. The reason to pair program is because it's the best way to get wet good, well-designed systems done in a reasonable amount of time. And the complaint about managers, I, I find to be irrelevant because it's none of their business. I mean, we're the programmers. We're the ones who know how to do this. So I, you know, I don't ask the managers if I can wash my hands after going to the bathroom. And I'm not going to ask the managers if it's okay for me to work with Jimmy over here because he knows a lot more about this topic than I do. So it seems to me that there's a... Um, a reluctance to confront management to get out of the way when they don't have any business being in the way at that moment in time. <laughs> it's a great perspective. I'm going to bring that back and see if I'm still employed. Let me uh, let me ask you about small groups. Yeah. Uh, there's always the temptation, again, by management. We've got this project. It's It's running long. We've got a lot of features. We want to throw more people at it. Can that be made to work by giving each of those, by breaking that into smaller groups and then giving each of those smaller groups distinct 
work to do? Can this be made to work? Yes, it can. It's it's dangerous. Uh, there's the old saying by Fred Brooks that adding manpower to a late project makes it later, uh, which is undeniably true. If, you, if, if at the 11th hour you decide to speed up by doubling the staff, you are not going to double your throughput. You're probably going to cut your throughput in half. On the other hand, if you've got time, if you're looking out into the future and you see that you're not going fast enough, you can add staff. And, and that's when you get to this point that you're talking about. You want to add it carefully. You're going to slow down a little bit as the new people come up to speed. There's no way around that. The new people will suck the life out of the old people for a while. But then if you properly separate them into nice groups and allow those groups to work collaboratively, then yes, you can get things done faster. I have personally done this. Right? I was working on a project in the late 90s. I was managing this project and we were not going to hit our deadlines. It was very clear from the, from the, the progress we were making that we were going to miss it by a fair bit. And I was able to carefully add more staff and partition them properly and get them working in the right way with the help of my business partner, who was invaluable at the time. Um, <clears throat> and we were able to bring the deadlines in. Okay. I want to go back to clean code and I want to couple that with a book that I bought recently called Clean Agile. <laughs> Back to basics. Okay. And and first, can you talk about the relationship between those two books? Is, is Clean Agile an update or new um, information? What's their relationship? Well, the, the relationship between the two books is the word clean, which seems to sell well. So that that's <laughs> probably about it. Um the the book the clean agile book is not new information in any sense it is a almost a retelling of kent beck's extreme programming book xp explained uh, from 1999 uh, if you laid if you laid those books side by side you'd find a great deal of commonality there with the difference that there's 20 years of perspective so uh, the way i describe the clean agile book it's it's an old man leading out of his house telling all the young kids to get off his lawn and then starts yelling at clouds. <laughs> okay. I'm not I'm not sure that's gonna sell a lot of books, but that's fine. <laughs> hey you kids get off my code. <laughs> the uh, the the sequel, I assume this was a sequel to Clean Code, was The Clean Coder. Yes. Sequel may not be the right word. It was pent-up angst. Um, as I wrote Clean Code, I, I focused very strongly on technical issues, and I pushed away any non-technical issue. I just kept it out of the book entirely. But, but as I'm writing Clean Code, all these non-technical issues pile up in my mind. And so um, I published Clean Code, and I had all this pressure in my brain that had to come out. So the the Clean Coder book is almost a um, a pressure relief. Just all this stuff poured out and it was all the non-technical things about being a programmer. You know, how, how do you estimate? How do you make any progress after you've had a big fight with your significant other and you just can't think? <laughs> things like that. How do you tell your boss that you're going to be late? Um, if you've been a programmer for any number of years, you know all these personal struggles. And how do you deal with them? And so it's another in in the series of books like The Pragmatic Programmer, right? which, which is a wonderful book from the 90s. Yes. I would say that as much as clean code made a huge difference in the way I program, the clean coder made a huge difference in how I exist in the environment 
and in, in, in the work environment and also how I interact both with management and with other programmers. I, th- I think it's, it's uh, almost as fundamental a revolution. So, <laughs> so what do you do? How are you, what business do you have making all these revolutions, young man? I don't know. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so let's start the programming, you know, maybe, maybe there's something to that. How many years? I started programming when I was uh, 12, 1964. Oh man. <laughs> Yeah, I'll tell you very quickly. I started programming in high school. Yeah. And I had two choices. I could use punch cards for Fortran or we had a little um, Olivetti. Nope. Monroe uh, desktop. And I thought we were programming that in assembly, but a friend of mine reminded me that we were actually programming it in machine code. <laughs> but whatever it was, I didn't like it. So uh, phase two was college, and I really hated computing. <laughs> and then the and then the PC came out, and I said, ah, now you have something. And uh, I'll tell you very briefly, I was in social work school. They had an MPM machine, which is close enough to a PC. Sure. And uh, I started playing with first basic and then Pascal, and then I was hooked. Yeah. So that goes back to about 1990 or so. And then, uh, you know, we went through C and we went through C++ and C Sharp hit in 2000. And I took one look and said, I'm not going back and you can't make me. <laughs> oh, Yes. I know that transition well. Uh, yes. you know, I I also did the punch cards in Fortran, although I do I was doing that as an employed programmer. Uh, Ooh, and nice. I did a fair bit of COBOL. <laughs> Hated it. It was awful. Started doing machine language and loved it. Loved loved assembly language. And and for a very long time I thought assembly language was the only way that real programmers wrote code. <laughs> Until I found C. And then I realized that no, C is the only way that real programmers write code. Uh, and then I found C plus <laughs> plus. C plus plus, I would argue, was a Trojan horse. C plus plus said to C programmers, "Look, C, nothing special. It's the same syntax, and thereby introduce people to object-oriented programming." Um, I think you're right about that. Uh, and then the the most important part of that, I think, was Drew Strip's 1986 book, which was mm-hmm. the C plus plus programming language that looked almost identical to the Kernahan and Ritchie book. Same font, same chapter zero, same writing style, same size of the book. And all the C programmers who had depended on Kernahan and Ritchie for 10 years looked at that and said, oh yeah, this is the next C. <laughs> I, I don't think anything had a more profound effect on the adoption of C++ than just the shape and the writing style of that book. That's a great insight. Never heard that before and I, I really <laughs> like it. Okay, let's just talk technically for a few minutes minutes about some of the things that are in clean code before I let you go. And uh, some of the ones that I think people find very interesting and very, uh, to some degree, somewhat provocative. For example, the law of Demeter. Oh, heavens. Okay. (laughs) Law law of Demeter. Or or Martin Fowler calls it um, maybe a guideline. Um, The law of Demeter says that um, you, you are allowed to know your internals. You're allowed to know your variables and your functions inside of a class. And you're allowed to know your neighbors. If you hold a reference to another object, you're allowed to know that. But you are not allowed to know what neighbors your neighbors have. The pragmatic programmers called this being shy. We don't want to know about our neighbors' neighbors. We'll just know about our neighbors. This is a way of reducing coupling. It's a way of keeping the span of knowledge local. And so I I tend to use the law very frequently. Um, I, I look at a line of code and see how many hops are in that line of code, how many dots. (laughs) 
you know, if you're if you're writing in Java or C sharp, how many dots are in that line of code? And the the best idea is that the number of dots should be like one or maybe two. I have a good friend who says um, when you have more than two dots, it looks like a freight train, and so it's called a train wreck. Got it. Says so right in your book. Yes, it does. I'm I'm staring at the table of contents, so it's not like I remember. All right. I won't take you through every detail of what's in here, but I do want to talk about unit tests. And specifically, I want to talk about the distinction between test-driven development and unit testing. Okay. And first, let's talk about the distinction, and then I have a question about it. Okay. Uh, all right. So the distinction between test-driven development and unit testing, um, if if we have agreement on what the word unit means, and for the moment, let's just stipulate that we do, um, then the difference is that with test-driven development, you use a very disciplined approach to write a very small bit of a unit test, and then a very small bit of production code in order to make that unit test pass. And then you add a little bit more to the unit test to make it fail and a little bit more to the production code to make it pass. And you maintain that loop. You sit in that loop going back and forth between these two streams of code literally every 20 seconds or so. So you're in this um, in this mode where you are building both sets of code simultaneously with the tests a few seconds ahead of the production code. Typical unit testing is done in a very, very different way. That discipline is entirely lost. Instead, you write a whole bunch of code and you kind of hope you can get it to compile and, and eventually you do get it to compile and then you execute it, maybe manually at first, uh, just, just to make sure that something works. And then you begin begin to write perhaps a few tests, uh, coded tests, to make sure that the major parts work. And you're, you're stuck in this mode of half manual, half written tests. And, and inevitably, if you work in that way, you will find parts of your code difficult to test. And, it, and it's difficult to test. It's difficult to write a test because the code was not designed to be testable. You wrote it first and you wrote it in the best way you could. But now and as you're writing tests, you realize it's not testable. You don't have to break some couplings. You'll have to take some things apart. But you've already tested it manually. You kind of know it works. And you think, well, okay, maybe I don't have to do that. So the, the fundamental difference between the two is that if you're working in test-driven development, you will have a test that tests everything. And if you work in the more traditional style of testing afterwards, you will almost inevitably leave holes in the test suite. And if you leave holes in the test suite, then when you execute it, you cannot trust it. Okay. So let's say <laughs> that you come apart, or you come along to work on a project that's four, five, six years in development. And let's stipulate for the moment that it's good code. Okay. It's, it's, it's written well. It's solid. It's flexible. Um, it's it's uh, fairly well refactored. But there's not one unit test on it. Yes. I'm just going to leave that problem in your lap. Okay. So what must happen to that code? It's well written. It's well designed. Uh, and there's not a single test. So what must happen? And here's, here's what happens. Someone will bring some code up on their screen. And they won't like it. It's just not quite right. It's maybe be a little dirty. And they think, you know, I could clean it up a little bit. But then they realize that if they touch it, they might break it. And if they break it, it'll become theirs forever. And so they react and they say, no, I'm, I'm not going to improve this code. I'm not going to do anything to better this code. I'm going to leave it alone. That's a fear reaction. 
And every programmer has experienced that fear reaction. The repercussions of that are that the code must rot. It must get worse with time because the programmers will not do the one thing that would allow it to get better with time or even stay clean with time. The code must be changed. There's going to be changes. There's going to be bugs to fix. There's going to be new features to add. And so long as we react in fear, we will do to the code the thing that protects us individually at the moment, not the thing that protects the project as a whole. So the code will degrade. And, and you and I have both seen code degrade over years. <laughs> Well-written, lovely code at the beginning degrades into a mass of a horror scene that slows everyone down <laughs> to an asymptotic approach to zero uh, over time. And that's why that happens. It's this fear reaction. If you have a suite of tests, the fear disappears. So long as you believe in those tests, so long as you trust them, the fear disappears. And then the programmers can keep the code improving constantly. Okay, but but I, I totally buy that. But <laughs> okay. there's an awful lot of us who come into a project in exactly the state that I described. Yes. So do you start your TDD going forward? Do you go back and try to create unit tests for what's there? What What's the best approach to that? So let me answer that in the negative. The worst approach is to start a project to get the code tested because that project will fail horribly. You will you will wildly misestimate estimate it. You'll lose all credibility when you fail. Do not start a project. The trick here is to change attitude. And the attitude change is something I call the Boy Scout rule. Boy Scout rule, Boy Scouts had a had a rule. You leave the campground cleaner than you found it. So same with the code. You leave the code cleaner than you found it. Every time you check in the code, you check it in a little bit better than you checked it out. Now, you don't have tests, so this is risky. So you have to do it in very small chunks. Everybody has to participate. Everybody has to promise to leave the code a little bit better. At first, you may not be able to add any tests, right? And fine, don't, but do something. Change the name of a variable. Uh, take a big function and split it in half, something. Do something that improves it. Over time, some of that code will start to become testable. And you can add a test or two. Don't add a lot of tests just a test or two. Let everybody continue to do this constant gentle improvement over time. There's in, in a large system like this, there's a whole bunch of code that nobody has touched in a decade. And you should not go pouring into that code and start and try to improve it. Right? Leave that code alone. It probably works. But there's other code that you're always in. You're always fiddling with this code. For some reason, it's the volatile part of the system. Whenever you're adding a new feature, whenever you're fixing a bug, you find yourself in this set of modules that you can improve. And over time, that volatile set of modules will get better and better and better at, to the point where maybe you can add some tests. And as you add tests, then you've got a, a growing snowball. The more tests you add, the easier it is to improve. The more you improve it, the easier it is to add tests. And you get a nice runaway uh, positive feedback loop leaving you with a system that is a hybrid of some kind. There's a whole bunch of code, untested, never been touched in years, leave it alone. Then there's all the volatile code that you are actively improving with time. And that's not a bad state for a system to grow into. Now, what about adding new features? Would you use TDD to add new features to that code? There's always two ways to add new features. Uh, the one way would be to smear the code through the existing system the way everyone's always done. Uh, and I would avoid that where feasible. Sometimes it's infeasible. Sometimes you just have to do it that way.
But in in I would try very hard to isolate the new feature into a brand new module and then use test-driven development to, to implement that brand new module and then tie that module into the old system using some, probably some ugly hacks. The, uh, the trade-off there is that you're going to do something ugly to tie this clean module in, but you will have a clean module. And if you can do that over and over again, then you'll have a bunch of clean modules tied into the, the hopefully gradually improving system that you're working on. Every time I talk with you, I learn something new. <laughs> and uh, A, I can't thank you enough for doing this today. And B, I do believe that we go, you know, five to 10 years between talking and we should try to do something about that. <laughs> yes, we should. Call me anytime. <laughs> all right. Thanks again for doing this. I really appreciate it. It's no problem at all. My pleasure.